CD8. The horde looked at one another. Still, to look on the bright side, I recall I still owe Fuffer the dwarf fifty dollars for this sword, said Boy Willie. Looks as though I could end up ahead of the game. Mr Savaloy put his head in his hands. I'm really sorry, he said. Don't worry about it, said Cohen. The grey light of dawn was just visible in the high windows. Look, said Mr Savaloy, you don't have to die. We could, well, we could sneak out. Back along the pipe, maybe. Perhaps we could carry Hamish. People are coming and going all the time. I'm sure we could get out of the city without any... His voice faded away. No voice could keep going under the pressure of those stairs. Even Hamish, whose gaze was generally focused on some point about eighty years away, was glaring at him. "'Hint gonna run,' said Hamish. "'It's not uh, a running away,' he managed. "'It's a sensible withdrawal. Tactics. Good grief, it's common sense. "'Hint gonna run.' Look, even barbarians can count, and you've admitted you're going to die. Ain't gonna run. Cohen leaned forward and patted Mr Savaloy on the head. It's the heroing, see, he said. Who's ever heard of a hero running away? All them kids you was telling us about. You know, the ones who think we're stories. You reckon they'd believe we ran away? Well, then. No, it's not part of the old deal, running away. Let someone else do the running. Besides, said Truckle, where would we get another chance like this? Six against five armies. That's bl- that, That's fantastic. We're not talking legends here. I reckon we've got a good crack at some mythology as well. But um, you'll die. Oh, that's part of it, I'll grant you. That's part of it. But what a way to go, eh? Mr Savaloy looked at them and realised that they were speaking another language in another world. It was one he had no key to, no map for. You could teach them to wear interesting pants and handle money, but something in their soul stayed exactly the same. Do teachers go anywhere special when they die? said Cohen. I don't think so, said Mr Savaloy gloomily. He wondered for a moment whether there really was a great free period in the sky. It didn't sound very likely. Probably there would be some marking to do. Well, whatever happens when you're dead, if you ever feel like a good quaff, you're welcome to drop in at any time, said Cohen. It's been fun. That's the important thing. And it's been an education, hasn't it, boys? There was a general murmur of assent. Amazing, all those long words. And learning to buy things. And social intercourse. <laughs> Sorry. What? Shame it didn't work out, but I've never been one for plans, said Cohen. Mr Savaloy stood up. I'm going to join you, he said grimly. What, to fight? Yes. Do you know how to handle a sword, said Truckle? Er, uh, no. Then you've wasted all your life. Mr Savaloy looked offended at this. I expect I'll get the hang of it as we go along he said. Get the hang of it. It's a sword. Yes, but when you're a teacher, you have to pick things up fast. Mr Savaloy smiled nervously. I once taught practical alchemy for a whole term when Mr Schism was off sick after blowing himself up. And up until then, I'd never even seen a crucible. Here! Boy Willie handed the teacher a spare sword. He hefted it. Er... Uh, I expect there's a, a, a manual or something? Manual? No, you hold the blunt end and poke the other end at people. Ah, really? Well, that seems quite straightforward. I thought there was rather more to it than that. You sure you want to come with us? said Cohen. Mr Savaloy looked firm. Absolutely. I very much doubt if I'll survive if you lose and... Well, it seems that you heroes get a better class of heaven. I must say, I rather suspect you get a better class of life too. And I really don't know where teachers go when they're dead, but I've got a horrible suspicion 
It'll be full of sports masters. It's just that I don't know if you could really go properly berserk, said Cohen. Have you ever had the red mist come down and woke up to find you'd bitten twenty people to death? I used to be reckoned a pretty ratty man if people made too much noise in class, said Mr Savaloy, and something of a dead shot with a piece of chalk, too. How about you, taxman? Six beneficent winds backed away hurriedly. I... I think I'm probably more cut out for undermining the system from within, he said. Fair enough, Cohen looked at the others. I've never done this official sort of war ring before, he said. How's it supposed to go? I think you just line up in front of one another and then charge, said Mr Savaloy. Seems straightforward enough. All right, let's go. They strode, or in one case wheeled, and in another case moved at Mr Savaloy's gentle trot down the hall. The taxman trailed after them. Mr Savaloy, he shouted. You know what's going to happen. Have you lost your senses? Yes, said the teacher, but I may have found some better ones. He grinned to himself. The whole of his life so far had been complicated. There had been timetables and lists, and a whole basket of things he must do and things he shouldn't do, and the life of Mr Savaloy had been this little wriggly thing trying to survive in the middle of it all. But now it had suddenly all become very simple. You held one end and you poked the other into people. A man could live his whole life by a maxim like that, and afterwards get a very interesting afterlife. Here, you'll need this too, said Caleb, poking something round at him as they stepped into the grey light. It's a shield. Ah, it's to protect myself, yes? If you really need to, bite the edge. Oh, I know about that, said Mr Savaloy. That's when you go berserk, right? Could be, could be, said Caleb. That's why a lot of fighters do it, but personally, I do it because it's made of chocolate. Chocolate? You can never get a proper meal in these battles. And this is me, thought Mr Savaloy, marching down the street with the heroes. They are the great fighters. And when in doubt, take all your clothes off, said Caleb. What for? Sign of a good berserk, taking all your clothes off. Frightens the hell out of the enemy. If anyone starts laughing, stab him one. There was a movement among the blankets in the wheelchair. What? I said stab him one, Hamish. Hamish waved an arm that looked like bone with skin on it, and apparently far too thin to hold the axe he was in fact holding. That's right. A right in the nadgers. Mr Savaloy nudged Caleb. I ought to be writing this down, he said. Where exactly are the Nadgers? Small range of mountains near the hub. Oh, fascinating. The citizens of Hung Hung were ranged along the city walls. It was not every day you saw a fight like this. Rincewind elbowed and kicked his way through the people until he reached the cadre, who'd managed to occupy a prime position over the main gate. What are you hanging around here for, he said. You could be miles away. We want to see what happens, of course, said Two Flower, his spectacles gleaming. I know what happens. The horde will be instantly slaughtered, said Rincewind. What did you expect to happen? Ah, but you're forgetting the invisible vampire ghosts, said Two Flower. Rincewind looked at him. What? Their secret army. I've heard that we've got some too. Should be interesting to watch. Two Flower, there are no invisible vampire ghosts. Ah, yes. Everyone's going round denying it, said Lotus Blossom, so there must be some truth in it. But I made it up. Ah, you may think you made it up, said Two Flower, but perhaps you are a pawn of fate. Listen, there's no... Same old Rincewind, said Two Flower in a jolly way. You always were so pessimistic about everything, but it always worked out all right in the end. There are no ghosts. There are no magic armies, said Rincewind. There's just... When seven men go out to fight an army 100,000 times bigger, there's only one way it can end, said Two Flower. Right. I'm glad you see sense. They'll win, said Two Flower. They've got to. Otherwise, the world's just not working properly. 
You look educated, said Rincewind to Butterfly. Explain to him why he's wrong. It's because of a little thing we have in our country. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called mathematics. The girl smiled at him. You don't believe me, do you? said Rincewind flatly. You're just like him. What do you think this is? Homeopathic warfare? The smaller your side, the more likely you are to win? Well, it's not like that. I wish it was like that, but it isn't. Nothing is. There are no amazing strokes of luck, no magic solutions, and the good people don't win because they're small and plucky. He waved his hand irritably at something. You always survived, said Two Flower. We had amazing adventures, and you always survived. That was just coincidence. You kept on surviving. And you got us safely out of prison, said Lotus Blossom. There were just a lot of coincidence. Will you go away? A butterfly skittered away from his flailing hand. Damn things, he mumbled, and added, Well, that's it. I'm off. I can't watch. I've got things to do. Besides, afterwards, I think nasty people are going to be looking for me. And then he realised there were tears in Lotus Blossom's eyes. We... we thought you would do something, she said. Me? I can't do anything, especially not magic. I'm famous for it. Don't go around believing that great wizards solve all your problems because there aren't any and they don't, and I should know because I'm not one. He backed away. This is always happening to me. I'm just minding my own business and everything goes wrong and suddenly everyone's relying on me and saying, Oh, Rincewind, what are you going to do about it? Well, what Mrs Rincewind's little boy, if she was a Mrs Rincewind, of course, what he's going to do about it is nothing, right? You have to sort it all out yourselves. No mysterious magical armies are going to... Will you stop looking at me like that? I don't see why it's my fault. I've got other things to do. It's not my business. And then he turned and ran. The crowds didn't take much notice of him. The streets were deserted by Hung Hung standards, which means you could quite often see the cobbles. Rincewind pushed and shoved his way along the alleys nearest the wall, looking for another gateway with guards too busy to ask questions. There were footsteps behind him. Look, he said, spinning round. I told you, you can all... It was the luggage. It contrived to look a little ashamed of itself. Oh, turned up at last, have we? said Rincewind savagely. What happened to the following master everywhere thing? The luggage shuffled its feet. From out of an alleyway came a slightly larger and far more ornate version of itself. Its lid was inset with decorative wood, and it seemed to Rincewind its feet were rather more dainty than the horny-nailed, calloused ones of the luggage. Besides, the toenails had been painted. Oh, he said. Well, good grief. Fair enough, I suppose. Really? I mean, yes. Well, come on then. He reached the end of the alley and turned round. The luggage was gently bumping the larger chest, urging it to follow him. Rincewind's own sexual experiences were not excessive, although he had seen diagrams. He hadn't the faintest idea about how it applied to travel accessories. Did they say things like, what a chest, or get a load of the hinges on that one? If it came to that, he had no real reason for considering that the luggage was male. Admittedly, it had a homicidal nature, but so had a lot of the women that Rincewind had met, and they'd often become a little more homicidal as a result of meeting him. Capacity for violence, Rincewind had heard, was unisexual, he wasn't sure what unisex was, but he expected that it was what he normally experienced. There was a small gate ahead. It seemed to be unguarded. Despite his fear, he walked through it and refrained from running. Authority always noticed a running man. The time to start running was around the E in Hey You. No one paid him any attention. The attention of the people along the wall was on the armies. Look at them he said bitterly to the generality of the universe. Stupid. If it was seven against seventy, everyone would know who'd lose. Just because it's seven against seven hundred thousand, everyone's not so sure. As though suddenly numbers don't mean anything anymore. <laughs> Why should I do anything? It's not as if I even know the guy that well. Admittedly, he saved my life a couple of times, but that's no reason to die horribly just because he can't count. So you can stop looking at me like that. The luggage backed away a little. The other luggage. Rincewind supposed it just looked female. Women had bigger luggage than men, didn't they? Because of the... He moved into unknown territory. Extra frills and stuff. 
It was just one of those things, like the fact that they had smaller handkerchiefs than men, even though their noses were generally the same size. The luggage had always been the luggage. Rincewind wasn't mentally prepared for there to be more than one. There was the luggage, and the other luggage. Come on, both of you, he said. We're getting out of here. I've done what I can. I just don't care anymore. It's nothing to do with me. I don't see why everyone depends on me. I'm not dependable. Even I don't depend on me, and I'm me. Cohen looked at the horizon. Grey-blue clouds were piling up. Is a storm coming? he said. It's a mercy that we won't be alive to get wet then, said Boy Willie cheerfully. Funny thing, though, it looks like it's coming from every direction at once. Filthy foreign weather. You can't trust it. Cohen turned his attention to the armies of the five warlords. There seemed to have been some agreement. They'd arranged themselves around the position that Cohen had taken up. The tactic seemed quite clear. It was simply to advance. The horde could see the commanders riding up and down in front of their legions. "'How's it supposed to start?' said Cohen, the rising wind whipping at what remained of his hair. "'Does someone blow a whistle or something? Or do we just scream and charge?' "'Commencement is generally by agreement,' said Mr. Savaloy. "'Oh!' Cohen looked at the forest of lances and pennants. Hundreds of thousands of men looked like quite a lot of men when you saw them close too. "'I suppose,' he said slowly, "'that none of you has got some amazing plan "'you've been keeping quiet about?' "'We thought you had one,' said Truckle. "'Several riders had now left each army "'and approached the horde in a group. "'They stopped a little more than a spear's throw away "'and sat and watched. "'All right, then,' said Cohen. "'I hate to say this, but perhaps we should talk about surrender.' "'No,' said Mr. Savaloy, "'and then stopped in embarrassment at the loudness of his own voice.' No, he repeated a little more quietly. You won't live if you surrender. You just won't die immediately. Cohen scratched his nose. What's that flag, you know, when you want to talk to them without them killing you? It's got to be red, said Mr. Savaloy. But look, it's no good. You know. I don't know, red for surrender, white for funerals, muttered Cohen. All right. Anyone got something red? I've got a handkerchief said Mr. Savaloy, but it's, it's white, and anyway, give it here. The barbarian teacher very reluctantly handed it over. Cohen pulled a small, worn knife from his belt. I don't believe this, said Mr. Savaloy. He was nearly in tears. Cohen the barbarian talking surrender with people like that. Influence of civilization," said Cohen. It's probably made me go soft in the head. He pulled the knife over his arm and then clamped the handkerchief over the cut. There we are, he said. Soon have a nice red flag. The horde nodded approvingly. It was an amazingly symbolic, dramatic and, above all, stupid gesture. In the finest traditions of barbarian heroing. It didn't seem to be lost on some of the nearest soldiers either. Now, Cohen went on, I reckon you, Teach, and you, Truckle, you two come with me and we'll go and talk to these people. They'll drag you off to their dungeons, said Mr. Savaloy. They've got torturers that can keep you alive for years. What? What's he say? He said they can keep you alive for years in their dungeons, Amish. Good. Fine by me. Oh, dear, said Mr. Savaloy. He trailed after the other two towards the warlords. Lord Hong raised his visor and stared down his nose at them as they approached. Red flag, look, said Cohen, waving the rather damp object on the end of his sword. Yes, said Lord Hong. We saw that little show. It may impress the common soldiers, but it does not impress me, barbarian. Please yourself, said Cohen. We've come to talk about surrender. Mr. Savaloy noticed some of the lesser lords relax a little. Then he thought, a real soldier probably doesn't like this sort of thing. You don't want to go to soldier heaven or wherever you go and say, I once led an army against seven old men. It wasn't medal-winning material. Ah, of course. So much for bravado, said Lord Hong. Then lay down your arm and you will be escorted back to the palace. Cohen and Truckle looked at one another. 
Sorry? said Cohen. Lay down your arms, Lord Hong snorted. That means put down your weapons. Cohen gave him a puzzled look. Why should we put down our weapons? Are we not talking about your surrender? Our surrender? Mr. Savaloy's mouth opened in a mad, slow grin. Lord Hong stared at Cohen. <laughs> you can hardly expect me to believe that you have come to ask us. He leaned from the saddle and glared at them. You do, don't you, he said. You mindless little barbarians. Is it true that you can only count up to five? We just thought it might save people getting hurt, said Cohen. You thought it would save you getting hurt, said the warlord. I dare say a few of yours might get hurt too. They're peasants, said the warlord. Oh yes, I was forgetting that, said Cohen. And you're their chief, right? It's like your game of chess, right? I am their lord, said Lord Hong. They will die at my bidding, if necessary. Cohen gave him a big, dangerous grin. When do we start, he said. Return to your band, said Lord Hong, and then I think we shall start shortly. He glared at Truckle, who was unfolding his bit of paper. The barbarian's lips moved awkwardly, and he ran a horny finger across the page. Misbegotten wretch, so you are, he said. My word, said Mr. Savaloy, who'd created the look-up table. As the three returned to the horde, Mr. Savaloy was aware of a grinding sound. Cohen was wearing several carrots off his teeth. Die at my bidding, he said. The bugger doesn't even know what a chief is meant to be, the bastard. Him and his horse. Mr. Savaloy looked around. There seemed to be some arguing among the warlords. You know, he said, they probably will try to take us alive. I used to have a headmaster like him. He liked to make people's lives a misery. You mean they'll be trying not to kill us, said Truckle. Yes. Does that mean we have to try not to kill them? No, I don't think so. Sounds OK to me. What do we do now, said Mr Savaloy? Do we do a battle chant or something? We just wait, said Cohen. There's a lot of waiting in warfare, said Boy Willie. Ah, yes, said Mr Savaloy. I've heard people say that. They say there's long periods of boredom followed by short periods of excitement. Not really, said Cohen. It's more like short periods of waiting followed by long periods of being dead. Blast. The fields were crisscrossed with drainage ditches. There seemed to be no straight path anywhere, and the ditches were too wide to jump. They looked shallow enough to wade, but only because 18 inches of water overlay a suffocating depth of rich, thick mud. Mr Savaloy said that the Empire owed its prosperity to the mud of the plains, and right now Rincewind was feeling extremely rich. He was also quite close to the big hill that dominated the city. It really was rounded, with a precision apparently far too accurate for mere natural causes. Savaloy had said that hills like that were drumlins, great piles of topsoil left behind by glaciers. Trees covered the lower slopes of this one, and there was a small building on the top. Cover. Now that was a good word. It was a big plain, and the armies weren't too far away. The hill looked curiously peaceful, as if it belonged to a different world. It was strange that the Agateans, who otherwise seemed to farm absolutely everywhere a water buffalo could stand, had left it alone. Someone was watching him. It was a water buffalo. It would be wrong to say it watched him with interest, it just watched him, because its eyes were open and had to be facing in some direction, and it had randomly chosen one which included Rincewind. Its face held the completely serene expression of a creature that had long ago realised that it was fundamentally a tube on legs and had been installed in the universe to, broadly speaking, achieve throughput. At the other end of the string was a man ankle-deep in the mud of the field. He had a broad straw hat, like every other buffalo holder. He had the basic pyjama suit of the Agatean man in the field, and he had an expression not of idiocy but of preoccupation. He was looking at Rincewind. As with the buffalo, this was only because his eyes had to be doing something. 
Despite the pressing dangers, Rincewin found himself overcome by a sudden curiosity. Er, uh, good morning, he said. The man gave him a nod. The water buffalo made the sound of regurgitating cud. Um, sorry if this is a personal question, said Rincewind, but I can't help wondering, why do you stand out in the fields all day with the water buffalo? The man thought about it. Good for soil, he said eventually. But doesn't it waste a lot of time, said Rincewind? The man gave this due appraisal also. What's time to a cow, he said. Rincewind reversed back onto the highway of reality. You see those armies over there, he said. The buffalo holder concentrated his gaze. Yes, he decided. They're fighting for you. The man did not appear moved by this. The water buffalo burped gently. Some want to see you enslaved and some want you to run the country, or at least to let them run the country while telling you it's you doing it really, said Rincewind. There's going to be a terrible battle. I can't help wondering, what do you want? The buffalo holder absorbed this one for consideration too, and it seemed to Rincewind that the slowness of the thought process wasn't due to native stupidity, but more to do with the sheer size of the question. He could feel it spreading out so that it incorporated the soil and the grass and the sun and headed on out into the universe. Finally, the man said, A longer piece of string would be nice. Oh, really? Well, well, there's a thing, said Rincewind. Talking to you has been an education. Goodbye. The man watched him go. Beside him, the buffalo relaxed some muscles and contracted others and lifted its tail and made the world, in a very small way, a better place. Rincewind headed on towards the hill. Random as the animal tracks and occasional plank bridges were, they seemed to head right for it. If Rincewind had been thinking clearly, an activity he last remembered doing around the age of twelve, he might have wondered about that. The trees of the lower slopes were sapient pears, and he didn't even think about that. Their leaves turned to watch him as he scrambled past. What he needed now was a cave or a handy... He paused. Oh, no, he said. No, 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 you don't catch me like that. I'll go into a handy cave and there'll be a little door or some wise old man or something and I'll be dragged back into events. Right. Stay out in the open. That's the style. He half climbed, half walked to the rounded top of the hill, which rose above the trees like a dome. Now he was closer. He could see that it wasn't as smooth as it looked from below. Weather had worn gullies and channels in the soil and bushes had colonised every sheltered slope. The building on the top was, to Rincewind's surprise, rusty. It had been made of iron, pointed iron roof, iron walls, iron doorway. There were a few old nests and some debris on the floor, but it was otherwise empty, and not a good place to hide. It would be the first place anyone would look. There was a cloud wall around the world now. Lightning crackled in its heart, and there was the sound of thunder, not the gentle rumble of summer thunder, but the crack, crack, crack of splitting sky. And yet the heat wrapped the plain like a blanket. The air felt thick. In a minute it was going to rain cats and food. Find somewhere where I won't be noticed, he muttered. Keep head down, only way. Why should I care? Other people's problem. Panting in the oppressive heat, he wandered on. Lord Hong was enraged. Those who knew him could tell by the way he spoke more slowly and smiled continuously. And how do the men know the lightning dragons are angry? He said. It may be mere high spirits. Not with a sky that colour, said Lord Tang. That is not an auspicious colour for a sky. It looks like a bruise. A sky like that is portentous. And what, pray, do you think it portends? It's just generally portentous. I know what's behind this, Lord Hong snarled. You're too frightened to fight seven old men, is that it? The men say they're the legendary seven indestructible sages, said Lord Fang. He tried to smile. You know how superstitious they are. 
What seven sages, said Lord Hong. I am extremely familiar with the history of the world, and there are no legendary seven indestructible sages. Um, not yet, said Lord Fang. Uh, but a day like this, perhaps legends have to start somewhere. They're barbarians. Oh, gods, seven men. Can I believe we're afraid of seven men? It feels wrong, said Lord McSweeney. He added quickly, that's what the men say. You have made the proclamation about our celestial army of ghosts, all of you? The warlords tried to avoid his gaze. Er, uh, yes, said Lord Fang. That must have improved morale. Uh, not entirely. What do you mean, man? Uh, many men have deserted. Um, they've been saying that foreign ghosts were bad enough, but... But what? They are soldiers, Lord Hong, said Lord Tang sharply. They all have people they do not want to meet, don't you? Just for a second, there was the suggestion of a twitch on Lord Hong's cheek. It was only for a second, but those who saw it took note. Lord Hong's renowned glaze had shown a crack. What would you do, Lord Tang? Let these insolent barbarians go? Of course not, but you don't need an army against seven men, seven ancient old men. The peasants say... they say... Lord Hong's voice was slightly higher. Come on, man, who talks to peasants? I'm sure you're going to tell us what they say about these foolhardy and foolish old men. Well, that's it, you see. They say if they're so foolish and foolhardy, how did they manage to become so old? Luck. It was the wrong word. Even Lord Hong realised it. He'd never believed in luck. He'd always taken pains, usually those of other people, to fill life with certainties. But he knew that others believed in luck. It was a foible he'd always been happy to make use of, and now it was turning and stinging him on the hand. There is nothing in the art of war to tell us how five armies attack seven old men, said Lord Tang, ghosts or no ghosts, and this Lord Hong is because no one ever thought such a thing would be done. If you feel so frightened, I'll ride out against them with my mere 250,000 men, he said. I'm not frightened, said Lord Tang. I am ashamed. Each man armed with two swords, Lord Hong went on, ignoring him, and I shall see how lucky these sages are, because, my lords, I will only have to be lucky once. They will all have to be lucky a quarter of a million times. He lowered his visor. How lucky do you feel, my lords? The other four warlords avoided one another's gaze. Lord Hong noticed their resigned silence. Very well, then, he said. Let the gongs be sounded and the firecrackers lit, to ensure good luck, of course. There were a large number of ranks in the armies of the Empire, and many of them were untranslatable. Three Pink Pig and five White Fang were, loosely speaking, privates, and not just because they were pale, vulnerable and inclined to curl up and hide when danger threatened. In fact, they were so private as to be downright secretive. Even the army's mules ranked higher than them, because good mules were hard to come by, whereas men like Pink Pig and White Fang are found in every army, somewhere where a latrine is in need of cleaning. They were so insignificant that they had privately decided that it would be a waste of an invisible foreign blood-sucking ghost's valuable time to attack them. They felt it only fair, after it had come all this way, to give it the chance of fiendishly killing someone superior. They had therefore hospitably decamped just before dawn and were now hiding out. Of course, if victory threatened, they could always recamp. It was unlikely that they'd be missed in all the excitement, and both men were somewhat expert at turning up on battlefields in time to join in the victory celebrations. They lay in the long grass, watching the armies manoeuvre. From this height it looked like an impressive war. The army on one side was so small as to be invisible. Of course, if you accepted the very strong denials of last night, it was so invisible as to be invisible. 
It was also their elevation, which meant that they were the first to notice the ring around the sky. It was just above the thunderous wall on the horizon. Where stray shafts of sunlight hit it, it glowed golden. Elsewhere it was merely yellow, but it was continuous and thin as a thread. "'Funny-looking cloud,' said White Fang. "'Yeah,' said Pink Pig. "'So what?' It was while they were thus engaged and sharing a small bottle of rice wine, liberated by Pink Pig from an unsuspecting comrade the previous evening, that they heard a groan. <sighs> their drinks froze in their throats. "'Did you hear that?' said Pink Pig. "'You mean the... "'Oh!' "'That's it.' "'They turned very slowly. "'Something had pulled itself out of a gully behind them. "'It was humanoid, more or less. "'Red mud dripped from it. "'Strange noises issued from its mouth. "'Oh, shit!' "'Pink Pig grabbed White Fang's arm. "'It's an invisible blood-sucking ghost!' "'But I can see it!' "'Pink Pig squinted.' "'It's the Red Army. They've come up out of the earth like everybody says!' White Fang, who had several brain cells more than Pink Pig, and more importantly was only on his second cup of wine, took a closer look. "'It could be just one ordinary man with mud all over him,' he suggested. He raised his voice. "'Hey, you!' The figure turned and tried to run. Pink Pig nudged his friend. "'Is he one of ours? Looking like that? Let's get him!' "'Why?' "'Cause he's running away. Let him run. Maybe he's got money. Anyway, what's he running away for?' Rincewind slid down into another gully. Of all the luck, soldiers should be where they were expected to be. What had happened to duty and honour and stuff like that? The gully had dead grass and moss in the bottom. He stood still and listened to the voices of the two men. The air was stifling. It was as if the oncoming storm was pushing all the hot air in front of it, turning the plane into a pressure cooker. And then the ground creaked and sagged suddenly. The faces of the absentee soldiers appeared over the edge of the gully. There was another creak, and the ground sank another inch or two. Rincewind didn't dare breathe in in case the extra weight of air made him too heavy, and it was very clear that the least activity, such as jumping, was going to make things worse. Very carefully, he looked down. The dead moss had given away. He seemed to be standing on a bulk of timber buried in the ground, but dirt pouring all around it suggested that there was a hole beneath. It was going to give way any second. Rincewind threw himself forward. The ground fell away underneath so that instead of standing on a slowly breaking piece of timber, he was hanging with his arms over what felt like another concealed log and by the feel of it one which was as riddled with rot as the first one. This one, possibly out of a desire to conform, began to sag, and then jolted to a stop. The faces of the soldiers vanished backwards as the sides of the gully began to slide. Dry earth and small stones slid past Rincewind. He could feel them rattle on his boots and drop away. He felt, as an expert in these things, that he was over a depth. From his point of view, it was also a height. The log began to shift again. This left Rincewind with, as he saw it, two options. He could let go and plunge to an uncertain fate in the darkness, or he could hang on until the timber gave way and then plunge to an uncertain fate in the darkness. And then, to his delight, there was a third option. The toe of his boot touched something, a root, a protruding rock. It didn't matter. It took some of his weight. It took at least enough to put him in precarious equilibrium, not exactly safe, not exactly falling. Of course, it was only a temporary measure, but Rincewind had always considered that life was no more than a series of temporary measures strung together. A pale yellow butterfly, with interesting patterns on its wing, fluttered along the gully and settled on the only bit of colour available, which turned out to be Rincewind's hat. The wood sagged slightly. "'Push off!' said Rincewind, trying not to use heavy language. "'Go away!' The butterfly flattened its wings and sunned itself. Rincewind pursed his lips and tried to blow up his own nostrils. Startled, the creature skittered into the air. "'Ha!' said Rincewind. And, in response to its instincts in the face of threat, moved its wings like this, this. The bushes shivered, and around the sky the towering clouds curved into unusual patterns. Another cloud formed. It was about the size of an angry grey balloon, and it started to rain. Not rain generally, but specifically. Specifically on about a square foot of ground which contained rinsewind. Specifically 
on his hat. A very small bolt of lightning stung Rincewind on the nose. Ah, so we have... Pink Pig, appearing round the curve of the gully, hesitated a bit before continuing, slightly more thoughtfully, a head in a hole with a very small thunderstorm above it. And then it dawned on him that, storm or no storm, nothing was preventing him from cutting off significant parts. The only significant part available was a head, but that was fine by him. At which point, Rincewind's hat having absorbed enough moisture, the ancient wood gave way under the strain and plunged him to an uncertain fate in the darkness. It was utterly dark. There had been a painful confusion of tunnels and sliding dirt. Rincewind assumed, or the small part of him that was not sobbing with fear assumed, that the earth had caved in after him. Cave. That was a significant word. He was in a cave. Reaching out carefully in case he felt something, he felt for something to feel. There was a straight edge. It led to three more straight edges going off at right angles. So, this meant slab. The darkness was still a choking velvet shroud. Slab meant that there was some other entrance, some proper entrance. Even now, guards were probably hurrying towards him. Perhaps the luggage was hurrying towards them. It had been acting very funny lately, that was for certain. He was probably better off without it. Probably. He patted his pockets, saying the mantra that even non-wizards invoke in order to find matches. That is, he said, matches, 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 madly to himself under his breath. He found some and scratched one desperately with his thumbnail. Ow! The smoky yellow flame lit nothing except Rincewind's hand and part of his sleeve. He ventured a few steps before it burned his fingers, and when it did, it left a blue afterglow in the darkness of his vision. There were no sounds of vengeful feet. There were no sounds at all. In theory, there should be the drip of water, but the air felt quite dry. He tried another match, and this time raised it as high as he could and peered ahead. A seven-foot warrior smiled at him. Cohen looked up again. It's going to piss down in a minute, he said. Will you look at that sky? There were hints of purple and red in the mass, and the occasional momentary glow of lightning somewhere inside the clouds. Teach? Yes? You know everything. Why is that cloud looking like that? Mr Savaloy looked where Cohen was pointing. There was a yellowish cloud low on the horizon. Right around the horizon, one thin streak, as though the sun was trying to find a way through. Could be the lining, said Boy Willie. What lining? Every cloud's supposed to have a silver one. Yeah, but that's more like gold. Well, gold's cheaper here. Is it me, said Mr Savaloy, or is it getting wider? Caleb was staring at the enemy lines. There's been a lot of blokes galloping about on their little horses, he said. I hope they get a move on. We don't want to be here all day. I vote we rushes them while they're not expecting it, said Hamish. Hold on, hold on, said Truckle. It was the sound of many gongs being beaten and the cracking of fireworks. Looks like the past, the love childs are moving. Thank goodness for that, said Cohen. He stood up and stubbed out his cigarette. Mr Savaloy trembled with excitement. Do we sing a song for the gods before we go into battle, he said. You can if you like, said Cohen. Well, do we say any heathen chants or prayers? Shouldn't think so, said Cohen. He glanced up at the horizon-girdling band. It was unsettling him far more than the approaching enemy. It was wider now, but slightly paler. For just a moment he found himself wishing that there was one god or goddess somewhere whose temple he hadn't violated, robbed or burned down. Don't we bang our swords on our shields and utter defiance? said the teacher, hopefully. Too late for that, really, said Cohen. Mr Savaloy looked so crestfallen at the lack of pagan splendour that the ancient barbarian was to his own surprise moved to add, but feel free if that's what you want. The horde drew their various swords. In Hamish's case, another axe was produced from under his rug. See you in heaven, said Mr Savaloy excitedly. Yeah, right, said Caleb, eyeing the line of approaching soldiers. Where there's feasting and young ladies and so forth. Yeah, yeah, said Boy Willie, testing the blade of his sword. And carousing and quaffing, I believe. 
Could be, said Vincent, trying to ease the tendonitis in his arm. And we'll do that thing, you know, where you throw the axes and cut ladies' plats off. Yeah, if you like. But what? The actual feasting, do they do anything vegetarian? And the advancing army screamed and charged. They rushed at the horde almost as fast as the clouds boiling in from every direction. Rincewind's brain unfroze slowly in the darkness and silence of the hill. It's a statue, he told himself. That's all it is. No problem there. Not even a particularly good one. Just a big statue of a man in armour. Look, there's a couple more. You can just see them at the edge of the light. Ow! He dropped the match and sucked his fingers. What he needed now was a wall. Walls had exits. True, they could also be entrances, but now there didn't seem much danger of any guards hurrying in here. The air had an ancient smell, with a hint of fox and a slight trace of thunderstorms, but above all, it tasted unused. He crept forward, testing each step with his foot. Then there was light. A small blue spark jumped off Rincewind's finger. Cohen grabbed at his beard. It was straining away from his face. Mr Savaloy's fringe of hair stood out from his head and sparked at the ends. Static discharges, he shouted above the crackle. Ahead of them, the spears of the enemy glowed at the tips. The charge faltered. There was the occasional shriek as sparks leapt from man to man. Cohen looked up. Oh my, he said. Will you look at that? Tiny sparks flickered around Rincewind as he eased himself over the unseen floor. The word tomb had presented itself for his consideration, and one thing Rincewind knew about large tombs was that their builders were often jolly inventive in the traps and spikes department. They also put in things like paintings and statues, possibly so that the dead had something to look at if they became bored. Rincewind's hand touched stone, and he moved carefully sideways. Now and again his feet touched something yielding and soft. He very much hoped it was mud. And then, right at hand height, was a lever. It stuck out fully two feet. Now, it could be a trap, but traps were generally, well, traps. The first you knew about them was when your head was rolling along the corridor several yards away. And trap builders tended to be straightforwardly homicidal and seldom required victims to actively participate in their own destruction. Rincewind pulled it. The yellow cloud sailed overhead in its millions, moving much faster on the wind they'd created than the slow beating of their wings would suggest. Behind them came the storm. Mr Savaloy blinked. Butterflies? Both sides stopped as the creatures sleeted past. It was even possible to hear the rustle of their wings. All right, Teach, said Cohen. Explain this one. It, uh, it, 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 it could be a natural phenomenon, said Mr Savaloy. Um, monarch butterflies, for example, have been known to, uh, uh, to tell you the truth, I don't know. The cloud swarmed on towards the hill. Not some kind of sign, said Cohen. There must have been some temple I didn't rob. The trouble with signs and portents, said Boy Willie, is you never know who they're for. This one could be a nice one for Hong and his pals. Then I'm nicking it, said Cohen. You can't steal a message from the gods, said Mr Savaloy. Can you see it nailed down anywhere? No? Sure. Right, so it's mine. He raised his sword as the stragglers fluttered past overhead. The gods smile on us, he bellowed. Ha 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 ha! Ha 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 ha, whispered Mr Savaloy. Just to worry him, said Cohen. He glanced at the other members of the horde. Each man nodded very slightly. All right, lads, he said quietly. This is it. Um, what do I do, said Mr Savaloy. Think of something to make yourself good and angry. That gets the old blood boiling. Imagine the enemy is everything you hate. Head teachers, said Mr Savaloy. Good. Sports masters, shouted Mr Savaloy. Yep. Boys who chew... Gum! screamed Mr. Savaloy. Look at him. Steam coming out of his ears already, said Cohen. First one to the afterlife gets him in. Charge! The yellow cloud thronged up the slopes of the hill and then, carried on the uprising wind, rose. 
Above it, the storm rose too, piling up and up and spreading into a shape, something like a hammer. It struck. Lightning hit the iron pagoda so hard that it exploded into white-hot fragments. It is confusing for an entire army to be attacked by seven old men. No book of tactics is up to the task of offering advice. There is a tendency towards bafflement. The soldiers backed away in the face of the rush and then, driven by currents in the great mass of men, closed in behind. A solid circle of shields surrounded the horde. It buckled and swayed under the press of men and also under the blows rained on it by Mr Savaloy's sword. Come on, fight, he shouted. Smoke pipes at me, would you? You, that boy there, answer me back, eh? Take that. Cohen looked at Caleb, who shrugged. He'd seen berserk rages in his time, but nothing quite so incandescent as Mr Savaloy. The circle broke as a couple of men tried to dart backwards and cannoned into the rank behind and then rebounded onto the swords of the horde. One of Hamish's wheels caught a soldier with a vicious blow on the knee, and as he bent over, one of Hamish's axes met him coming the other way. It wasn't speed. The horde couldn't move very fast. But it was economy. Mr Savaloy had remarked on it. They were simply always where they wanted to be, which was never where somebody's sword was. They let everyone else do the running around. A soldier would risk a slash in the direction of Truckle and find Cohen rising in front of him, grinning and swinging, or Boy Willie giving him a nod of acknowledgement and a stab. Occasionally, one of the horde took time to parry a blow aimed at Mr Savaloy, who was far too excited to defend himself. "'Pull back, you bloody fools!' Lord Hong appeared behind the throng, his horse rearing, his helmet visor flung back. The soldiers tried to obey. Finally, the press eased a little and then opened. The horde were left in a widening ring of shields. There was something like silence, broken only by the endless thunder and the crackle of lightning on the hill. And then, pushing their way angrily through the soldiers, came an altogether different breed of warrior. They were taller and heavier armoured, with splendid helmets and moustaches that looked like a declaration of war in themselves. One of them glared at Cohen. What's that? said Cohen. He's a samurai, said Mr Savaloy, wiping his forehead. The warrior caste. I think that's their formal challenge. Um, would you like me to fight him? One samurai glared at Cohen. He pulled a scrap of silk out of his armour and tossed it into the air. The other hand grabbed the hilt of his long, thin sword. There was hardly even a hiss, but three shreds of silk tumbled gently to the ground. "'Get back, Teach,' said Cohen slowly. "'I reckon this one's mine. Got another anky? Thanks.' The samurai looked at Cohen's sword. It was long, heavy, and had so many notches in it it could have been used as a saw. "'You'll never do it,' he said. "'With that sword, never.' Cohen blew his nose noisily. "'You say,' he said. "'Watch this.' The handkerchief soared into the air. Cohen gripped his sword. He'd beheaded three upward-staring samurai before the handkerchief started to tumble. Other members of the horde, who tended to think in much the same way as their leader, had accounted for half a dozen more. "'Got the idea from Caleb,' said Cohen. "'And the message is, either fight or muck about. It's up to you.' "'Have you no honour? screamed Lord Hong. "'Are you just a ruffian?' "'I'm a barbarian!' shouted Cohen. "'And the honour I got, see, is mine. "'I didn't steal it off someone else.' "'I had wanted to take you alive,' said Lord Hong. "'However, I see no reason to stick to this policy.' "'He drew his sword. "'Back, you scum!' he screamed. "'Right back! Let the bombardiers come forward!' "'He looked back at Cohen. "'His face was flushed. "'His spectacles were askew. "'Lord Hong had lost his temper.' And as is always the case when a dam bursts, it engulfs whole countries. The soldiers pulled back. The horde were, once again, in a widening circle. "'What's a bombardier?' said Boy Willie. "'Er, uh, I believe it must mean people who fire some sort of projectile,' said Mr Savaloy. "'The word derives from—' "'Oh, archers,' said Boy Willie, and spat. "'What?' said Mad Hamish. He said they're going to use archers, Hamish. <laughs> we never let archers stop us at the Battle of Coombe Valley, cackled the antique barbarian. Boy Willie sighed. 
That was between dwarfs and trolls, Hamish, he said, and you ain't either. So whose side were you on? What? I said, whose side were you on? I were on the side of being paid money to fight, said Hamish. Best side there is. Rincewind lay on the floor with his hands over his ears. The sound of thunder filled the underground chamber. Blue and purple light shone so brightly that he could see it through his eyelids. Finally, the cacophony subsided. There were still the sounds of the storm outside, but the light had faded to a blue-white glow and the sound into a steady humming. Rincewind risked rolling over and opening his eyes. Hanging from rusted chains in the roof were big glass globes. Each one was the size of a man, and lightning crackled and sizzled inside, stabbing at the glass, seeking a way out. At one time there must have been many more, but dozens of the big globes had fallen down over the years and lay in pieces on the floor. There were still scores up there, swaying gently on their chains as the imprisoned thunderstorms fought for their freedom. The air felt greasy. Sparks crawled over the floor and crackled on each angle. Rincewind stood up. His beard streamed out as a mass of individual hairs. The lightning globes shone down on a round lake of, to judge from the ripples, pure quicksilver. In the centre was a low, five-sided island. As Rincewind stared, a boat came drifting gently around to his side of the pool, making a little slup-slup noise as it moved through the mercury. It was not a lot larger than a rowing boat, and lying on its tiny deck was a figure in armour. Or possibly just the armour. If it was just empty armour, then it was lying in the arms-folded position of a suit of armour that has passed away. Rincewind sidled around the silver lake until he reached a slab of what looked very much like gold, set in the floor in front of a statue. He knew you got inscriptions in tombs, although he was never sure who it was who was supposed to read them. The gods, possibly, although surely they knew everything already. He'd never considered that they'd cluster around and say things like, Gosh, dearly beloved, was he? I never knew that. This one simply said, in pictograms, One Sun Mirror. There wasn't anything about mighty conquests. There was no list of his tremendous achievements. There was nothing down there about wisdom or being the father of his people. There was no explanation. Whoever knows his name, it seemed to say, knows everything. And there was no admitting the possibility that anyone getting this far would not have heard the name of One Sun Mirror. The statue looked like porcelain. It had been painted quite realistically. One Sun Mirror seemed an ordinary sort of man. You would not have pointed him out in a crowd as emperor material. But this man, with his little round hat and little round shield and little round men on little round ponies, had glued together a thousand warring factions into one great empire, often using their own blood to do it. Rincewind looked closer. Of course, it was just an impression, but around the set of the mouth and the look of the eyes there was an expression he'd last seen on the face of Genghis Cohen. It was the expression of someone who was absolutely and totally unafraid of anything. The little boat headed towards the far side of the lake. One of the globes flickered a little and then faded to red. It winked out. Another followed it. He had to get out. There was something else, though. At the foot of the statue, lying as if they'd just been dropped there, were a helmet, a pair of gauntlets, and two heavy-looking boots. Rincewind picked up the helmet. It didn't look very strong, but it did look quite light. Normally he didn't bother with protective clothing, reasoning that the best defence against threatening danger was to be on another continent, but right now the idea of armour had its attractions. He removed his hat, put the helmet on, put down the visor, and then wedged the hat on top of the helmet. There was a flicker in front of his eyes, and Rincewind was staring at the back of his own head. It was a grainy picture, and it was in shades of green rather than proper colours, but it was definitely the back of his own head he was looking at. People had told him what it looked like. He raised the visor and blinked. The pool was still in front of him. He lowered the visor. There he was, about fifty feet away, with his helmet on his head. He waved a hand up and down. The figure in the visor waved a hand up and down. He turned around and faced himself. Yep, that was him. OK, he thought. A magic helmet. It lets you see yourself a long way away. Great. You can have fun watching yourself fall into holes you can't see because they're right up close. He turned around again, raised the visor, and inspected the gloves. They seemed as light as the helmet, but quite clumsy. You could hold a sword, but not much else. He tried one on. 
Immediately, with a faint sizzling noise, a row of little pictures lit up on the wide cuff. They showed soldiers. Soldiers digging, soldiers fighting, soldiers climbing. Ah, so, magic armour. Perfectly normal magic armour. It had never been very popular in Ankh-Morpork. Of course it was light, you could make it as thin as cloth, but it tended to lose its magic without warning. Many an ancient lord's last words had been, You can't kill me because I've got magic... Ah! Rincewind looked at the boots, with suspicious recollection of the trouble there had been with the university's prototype seven-league boots. Footwear which tried to make you take steps twenty-one miles long imposed unfortunate groinal strains. They'd got the things off the student just in time, but he'd still had to wear a special device for several months, and eight standing up. All right, but even old magic armour would be useful now. It wasn't as if it weighed much, and the mud of Hung Hung hadn't improved what was left of his own boots. He put his feet into them. He thought, well, so, what's supposed to happen now? He straightened up, and behind him, with the sound of 7,000 flowerpots smashing together, the lightning still crackling over them, the Red Army came to attention. Hex had grown a bit during the night. Adrian Turnipseed, who had been on duty to feed the mice and rewind the clockwork and clean out the dead ants, had sworn that he'd done nothing else and that no one had come in. But now, where there had been the big clumsy arrangement of blocks so that the results could be read, was a quill pen in the middle of a network of pulleys and levers. Uh, watch, said Adrian, nervously tapping out a very simple problem. It's come up with this after doing all those spells at supper time. The ants scuttled, the clockwork spun, the springs and levers jerked so sharply that Ponder took a step back. The quill pen wobbled over to an inkwell, dipped, returned to the sheet of paper Adrian had put under the levers, and began to write. It blots a bit, he said in a helpless tone of voice. What's happening? Ponder had been thinking further about this. The latest conclusions hadn't been comforting. Well, we know that books containing magic become a little bit... Sapient, he began, and we've made a machine for... You mean, it's alive? Come on, let's not get all occult about this, said Ponder, trying to sound jovial. We're wizards, after all. Listen, you know that long problem in Thalmic Fields you wanted me to put in? Yes, well? It gave me the answer at midnight, said Adrian, his face pale. Good. Yes, Good, except that I didn't actually give it the problem until half past one, Ponder. You're telling me you got the answer before you asked the question? Yes. Why did you ask the question, then? I, I thought about it and I thought maybe I had to. I mean, it couldn't have known what the answer was going to be if I didn't give it the problem, right? Um, good point. Um, you waited 90 minutes, though. Adrian looked at his pointy boots. I, I was hiding in the privy. Well, redo from start could... All right, all right. Going to have something to eat. Are we meddling with things we don't understand, Ponder? Ponder looked up at the gnomic bulk of the machine. It didn't seem threatening, merely... other. He thought, meddle first, understand later. You had to meddle a bit before you had anything to try to understand, and the thing was never, ever to go back and hide in the lavatory of unreason. You have to try to get your mind around the universe before you can give it a twist. Perhaps we shouldn't have given you a name. We didn't think about that. It was a joke. But we should have remembered that names are important. A thing with a name is a bit more than a thing. Off you go, Adrian, he said firmly. He sat down and carefully typed, Hello. Things word. The quill wrote, plus, 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 question mark, question mark, plus, 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 hello, plus, 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 redo from start, plus, plus, plus. Far above, a butterfly, its wings an undistinguished yellow, with black markings, fluttered through an open window. Ponder began the calculations for the transfer between Hung Hung and Ankh Morpork. The butterfly alighted for a moment on the maze of glass pipes. When it rose again, it left behind a very small blob of nectar. Ponder typed carefully far below. A small but significant ant, one of the scurrying thousands, emerged from a break in the tube and spent a few seconds sucking at the sweet liquid before going back to work. After a while, Hex gave an answer. Apart from one small but significant point, it was entirely correct.
Rincewind turned around. With an echoing chorus of creaks and groans, the Red Army turned around too. And it was red. It was the same colour, Rincewind realised, as the soil. He'd bumped into a few statues in the darkness. He hadn't realised that there were this many. They stretched rank on rank into the distant shadows. Experimentally, he turned around. Behind him, there was another chorus of stampings. After a few false starts, he found that the only way to end up facing them was to take off the boots, turn, and put the boots on again. He lowered the visor for a moment and saw himself lowering the visor for a moment. He stuck up an arm. They stuck out their arms. He jumped up and down. They jumped up and down with a crash that made the globes swing. Lightning sizzled from their boots. He felt a sudden hysterical urge to laugh. He touched his nose. They touched their noses. He made, with terrible glee, the traditional gesture for the dismissal of demons. Seven thousand terracotta middle fingers stabbed towards the ceiling. He tried to calm down. The word his mind had been groping for finally surfaced, and it was golem. There were one or two of them, even in Ark Morpork. You were bound to get them in any area where you had wizards or priests of an experimental turn of mind. They were usually just figures made out of clay and animated with some suitable spell or prayer. They potted about doing simple odd jobs, but they were not very fashionable these days. The problem was not putting them to work, but stopping them from working. If you set a golem to digging a garden, then forgot about it, you'd come back to find it had planted a row of beans 1,500 miles long. Rincewind looked down at one of the gloves. He cautiously touched the little picture of a fighting soldier. The sound of 7,000 swords being simultaneously unsheathed was like the tearing of a thick sheet of steel. 7,000 points were pointed right at Rincewind. He took a step back. So did the army. He was in a place with thousands of artificial soldiers wearing swords. The fact that he appeared to have control of them was no great comfort. He'd theoretically had control of Rincewind for the whole of his life, and look what happened to him. He looked at the little pictures again. One of them showed a soldier with two heads. When he touched it, the army turned about smartly. Ah, now to get out of here. End of CD 8